0: My guest today is Bethany Ayers, Chief Operating Officer at PEAK. Originally from New Mexico, Bethany has lived in London for the past 20 years. In addition to her role at PEAK, she's founder of strategy consulting firm, The Multiply Group. Bethany is also a member of the Revenue Collective, a member of the Sales Psych resident, and an advisor at Notion Capital. How she manages to keep all those balls in the air is beyond me. Bethany, you're very welcome to the podcast. me here today <laughs> my pleasure my pleasure bethany i i, I noticed you, you you said you're you you're in london for a long time you grew up i think albuquerque new mexico did, tell yeah. me a little bit about what that was like background i think it was you you mentioned before that it was a scientific background in terms of your parents and family and then you end up in sales where did you go wrong what Yeah, that's
1: what my family wants to know <laughs> such a dirty word for them or it was at least in the beginning Uh, Yeah, so New Mexico is, or Albuquerque is what you see on Breaking Bad. People ask me about it all the time. Um, We really do have a meth issue and lots of meth cooking. When I was growing up, we used to have PSAs public service announcements that would talk about how to recognize if somebody was cooking meth next door. And I just assumed that those were nationwide PSAs. And It was only when I went to uni and started talking to people that I found out that it was specific to New Mexico. And so it's very fitting that Breaking Bad is taking place there. Um, so that just gives you a slight idea of, of New Mexico, what it looks like. It's beautiful, but it's also very scientific. Uh, the biggest employer, I believe, still is the is Sandia National Labs. We also have Los Alamos and we have a massive rich-poor gap. So we have the highest per capita number of PhDs and also, I think, the highest, uh, one of the highest poverty rates. And so there's just not a lot of business in New Mexico. Everybody's a scientist, or at least in my family.
0: I I never knew that about Mexico, uh, New Mexico, I should say. And uh, I'm curious, are those PhDs in chemistry by any chance?
1: Yep. Chemistry, physics, anything that it takes to build a weapon or two. Uh,
0: I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, Peak, first of all, uh, Bethany, just maybe for our audience who wouldn't be familiar with the company, maybe you could tell us a little bit about that.
1: PEAK specializes in helping customers make better decisions and we do that through what we call Decision Intelligence which is the commercial application of AI to drive profits and uh, drive profits and increase revenues for businesses.
0: Can we just dissect that a little bit because very often at a very high level these statements can kind of position a company in a particular space but also leave a big gap in terms of, okay, well, what does that mean at a practical level? And so I wanted to understand, maybe you'd have an example of a company you're working with without going into anything that's uh, uh, confidential, but just to give it an, an example of the application of where that AI has made their life better and how it works for them in, in a everyday sense.
1: So for marketing, for example, what we're able to do is take in all of the data, sales data, web data, your GA, um, and look at not just how have you how customers have performed in the past, but also what are they, who's in market, who's out of market, who's likely to churn, and um, what products they want to see. Do they like um, discounts? Uh, and tie all of that together, and then automatically. Pre- pre- Automatically create segments that you can market to um, and tell you who you should be marketing to. So instead of having to think through who might be in market or I need to sell some red shoes, you can automatically find the right people um, and send out the message. And then also we can look at is it email? Is it uh, a push notification? Is it via Facebook? You know, who, how are we going to contact people and what's their preference? So that would be something we're working with um, quite a few customers on and through what we call this hyper personalization. So it's really getting to know your customers. Um, Our customers have seen an uplift on their digital channels of 26% sales. And that is really from targeting the right customer with the right product at the right time and doing it in real life, real, real time. So as soon as you've bought. That lamp that you like, you're no longer in market for lamps, but you now might be in market for light bulbs or um, mirrors, let's say, and we could go from there.
0: So essentially, it's it's an analysis of big data to garner some sort of insights into where organizations should be putting their efforts.
1: So it's both the analysis and the action. So it will say that these. For example, you can see in, we can also take warehousing and stock data. So you can see that in your warehouse, you have too many to not, I'm trying not to identify any of our customers with this. So too many highlighter pens, (laughs) guess what's over here on my desk. And uh, you can then also look at everybody who might be in market for a highlighter pen. And it will, it, it, the marketer doesn't have to know that there's too many highlighter pens we will tell the marketer that you have too much and you're overstocked and these are the people that would be interested in buying them and then either it will automatically happen or marketing can say yes that is something i want to do and send it out so it's more than it, it's multiple decisions that we can automate makes sense. from makes sense. the analysis all the way through to the action yeah
0: all right I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit more about you, if that's all right, in terms of what's influenced you in the past, some of those pivotal moments in your life that kind of made you think differently and change direction. And I noticed something you said in a presentation you gave was, you said was about your journey going from not a nice person to a nicer person. And I was curious to know what you meant by that.
1: Yeah, so... um I, where do I start? It's like, do I get to just tell you my whole life story and are you gonna
0: be interested in it? If you could start with the, what what, what you meant when you said, because I noticed you said that you were somebody who wanted to win at all costs. And I'm always fascinated with the psychology of that and actually where it comes from as well. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to explore that because I think it's something that a lot of people in sales leadership uh, have to confront in themselves in terms of, Th- their own perceptions of what a good sales leader is about. And and then, and then they typically go on some journey where they discover a lot about themselves. And that's what I wanted to understand from you as well as what you uncovered about yourself from where you started and what type of a person you were then yeah. to where you are now.
1: Yeah. So I came from, I, I think I'm one of many that didn't have a particularly supportive and um, healthy childhood so there's lots of baggage around really only being valued for the results that I drove rather than me like I didn't feel like there was a lot of a purpose to me other than you know when I brought home A's when I was the good girl when I was the star that's when I felt valued Um, and so that means that you're always searching for being the star and for being the best person and um, getting that validation. And so, and it was such a huge need in me because that's where I felt good that I was just extremely jealous of anybody else who would ever get that attention and highly competitive for it. So it wasn't like I will do my best and if I'm not number one, that's fine. Cause I'll be really happy for somebody who's number one and I can be number two. It was just like, that person that person is better than me because that person has done more than me therefore i'm a horrible person i have no value i shouldn't really be around and it, it and in a, you know looking back it's crazy but the feeling that so immensely and just how sad i could become meant that i really didn't ever want to be there um, and so it was easy to win at all costs in order to keep feeling good myself um, and didn't recognize it as a hollow victory. It was it was enough of a victory for me. Um, and then so from a previous talk I gave, um, there was definitely a, a pivotal moment for me um, in a board meeting that went very, very wrong. And uh, I got huge amounts of negative feedback it was for in a work environment the only time that had ever happened to me i felt like an absolute failure i also really 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 wanted to cry but knew that that would be horrifically embarrassing and humiliating and then my ceo in some sort of way of trying to be supportive pointed out how he could see how upset i was and how i was about to cry which of course just really didn't help the situation um i got out of there and just cried for days and I had been in therapy at that point for a couple years already and luckily I had just happened to have a therapy session set for that day spent the whole day crying um and it it was just like a dam broke I, I don't know how else to describe it and from that Thursday till Sunday all I did was cry and um and it just came out the other wet side and part of it was what my therapist had told me and part of it was also how supportive the board members were um and this and and that my what my therapist was saying was was backed up by the board members so it was you know it's not humiliating vulnerability might actually have some strength in it um think about people that you really respect nelson mandela he shows loads of vulnerability but people find him strong not weak um, so those messages coming in and the board everybody individually reaching out to me, making sure I was okay and genuinely caring about me made me realize that it wasn't just my success that made difference, but they actually had individual connections with me.
0: It's interesting. I, I remember reading Carl Dweck wrote a book, I think of the growth mindset, and I think it was in her book. Uh, she talked about children that children who are praised for the results they get versus being praised for the effort they put in. And what they've, they've found, and they've done numerous studies on this, that people who are praised for the results they get will go to actually, and you mentioned at all costs, which I thought was interesting, is but that they'll actually cheat in exams in order to get those results because their whole identity is tied up in what they bring home and they're told, well done, you got an A. Or if they don't get an A, it's like what went wrong, and and their whole identity then is tied up in that. Versus children who bring home whatever result, you know, if they bring home an A, it's that well done. You worked really hard for that, and you deserve it. Which in, it breeds a different type of person entirely, uh, and it's and it's interesting then that that's something that you discovered later on. How did you unwind that? Because there's there's a lot of identity tied up in that position, and. You could go to to a therapy session and somebody can explain it to you intellectually, but that doesn't help you unwind it. And I'm curious to know how you went about that, because that's 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 a that's a huge mountain to climb. It is. And
1: Brené Brown's book on vulnerability. I read somewhere around that same time, and within that, she talks about. Um, you so much of this is shame and learning to share your shame in a safe way so you don't go to your biggest critic and say these are all the things i feel ashamed about because they're not going to support you and it's not going to work but go to your biggest champion and start to share that shame um and realize that you get support for it and it actually for me at least just dissolves when i talk to somebody Um, because so much of it's holding it in and when you offer it out it just evaporates And so it's little steps with that person you trust uh, with a wider group, maybe something not as shameful, but you can't like a combination of trusting the people and the amount that you're willing to share. And over time, you can share with more people, more of it. And when you get support for that, it's self reinforcing. And then you realize that actually people really like it and people relate to you and, um, think you're really brave. But if you've done it in little steps, you're not actually really brave anymore. Cause you've just learned each part of the way. It's not scary. It's not scary. It's not scary. And it's not.
0: Yeah. I, and I, you mentioned shame. I think that's a big one as well. I, I remember talking to my wife about this, that I felt huge shame around as a child running away from a couple of fights and feeling like a coward. And then actually in, where this came from in my adult life, then always feeling like I had to take on a fight. And it was like, I was trying to relive that and prove it to myself. I'm not a coward, I'm not a coward. And what she, she said it to me, she says, why are you being so hard on, on, on six year old Paul? He hmm. was just six years of age. And she was so right It was really powerful that you kind of go, if that was my son and somebody was shaming him or my daughter over something like that. You kind of go, hang on a second, this is not right. But we do, which leads me on to something you talk about as well, which is kind of self-forgiveness. And I think it's part of that, what you call the power of three. Maybe you could share that with us and then how that might dovetail into how that influences you then as a leader in developing sales culture.
1: Um, Yes, so, Now you're making
0: me think of my power of three. um, Vulnerability was one. Vulnerability is one. Um, Self-forgiveness
1: is the second. Um,
0: That's what prompted me when you said about the self-forgiveness being hugely important, that to break that cycle of sometimes negative behavior that manifests itself in adult life, but actually goes back to some shame or whatever you feel as a kid, and is to be able to say, look, you were just a kid, right? Yeah.
1: And I think there's both you were just a kid if you're self-aware enough to realize that route because sometimes you're not um, and then there's also. Just hearing your inner dialogue and this has been a huge one for me and again, I can't remember where I read it, but it was. Would you talk, imagine somebody you love and it's easy if you have kids, your kids. And would you ever say to that person what you say to yourself? And, just, and it's this moment of like, wow, no. So like, so why are you saying it to yourself? And the first step is just being aware that you're doing it. And then the next one is to start to lessen those. And some of it for me is, and some of it is like, will still be a habit. So I used to be like, I'm so stupid. How could I have done that? How could I have made this mistake? I'm absolutely an idiot. And I still have that immediate res- reaction but i have also just trained it to silly me which is so much lighter right and i can have that and i'll just be like silly me and i get the relief of wanting to beat myself up but there's also a little bit of humor for me and i can just let it go and this is my little trigger <laughs> to not go down those rabbit holes yeah
0: so there's a release there but it's a more lighthearted less less kick me type of thing because that's the interesting thing is if somebody else spoke to you that way as a, I'm an idiot and if somebody else spoke to you, you wouldn't tolerate it, but yet it kind of just bypasses our own filters a lot as well. I I know also that you're a big reader and that that's been a big part of your journey as well in terms of how it's informed you as an adult. Talk to me a little bit about some of those um, breakthrough moments that you had where you read something and it informed you about who you were and who you wanted to be?
1: Yeah, I think probably every book I read informs me in some way, um, either a validation of where I'm going and like, ha ha, aren't I clever? I thought of that as well. And because I still fundamentally need validation. Um, and I, I'm aware of it and I can laugh about it, but there are nice moments when I get a little bit of that. Um, but I can also now recognize, isn't that, author quite clever whereas in my old world I would have been like I hate that author how come they've written a book with that with my idea whereas now isn't it great we both have the same idea that's lovely.
0: Great minds think alike. Yeah
1: <laughs> just give an example of that change in mindset over time. Um, I'm trying to think I guess I have a lot of like book specific and which leads us well into management um so I find leadership a really interesting concept and one that I still I don't know struggle with is the right word, but. I still feel like I'm very early on my journey of being a leader. And the fact that it's a discipline. I find fascinating because like, how can it be a discipline? Because we've had leaders for a very long time. But we it's also a learned skill. And so I read a lot about it right now, and I don't think I started out as a particularly empathetic person. So quite often I need the books to give me the logical framework to then be able to have empathy. Um, and, and so there's, um, there is a book called tribal leadership, which is basically Maslow's hierarchy of needs created in these five levels um and i find that very helpful to think about like where are people in their journeys where are teams and groups on theirs Um, and if you're not familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs it's basically survival then uh well a little bit more survival then i'm doing better than everyone else then as a team we're doing well and then a higher purpose and and what's your meaning and kind of where are you in that path and what what do you need then? Like, if you can't eat, you don't care about a higher purpose. Um, But what was really interesting for me in that book was, when I read it originally, it was before the board meeting shattering of my world. And I very much viewed it as like five is the best, one is the worst, I'm a four or I'm a five. And therefore I'm better than everyone else. And then rereading it recently was just like, it's just a journey. (laughs) It's not a five, a five might be more productive and be happier, but you need everything you learn along the way. You can't stop. And how, how to appreciate your life and the setbacks along the way, and also the skills that you need to learn.
0: Not sure if that makes a huge amount of no, sense. It, 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 it does, and, and I want, I'll get into that in a moment. I, I was smiling a moment ago. I, I probably should explain it. When you were talking about Maslow's hierarchy, I, I've seen the updated one, which below they have uh, where they have basic needs. They have underneath that now they have uh, good Wi-Fi access. Yeah. <laughs> but. Uh, well, I'm curious from a, from a leadership point of view that you've read a lot about the topic and you said you feel like you're only starting out on the journey, which in itself is actually quite telling because you'll never find a great leader will say, I'm done. I've learned everything. They're always on a journey. So that that's quite telling. They're, they're learners uh, first and foremost, and they're hu- humble enough to know that they don't know it all, far from it. Who, from a leadership point of view, where do you take your influences from? Uh,
1: so as I mentioned before, Brené Brown, but I find it quite interesting because I really enjoy her writing and I think she has struck some real truths and I've started listening to her leadership podcast and she's a bit like Simon Sinek for me, where she actually really like her voice bothers me. She's a little too enthusiastic. Um, she likes her guests a little too much. There's a lot of boisterousness that I find quite uncomfortable, yet I love what she's saying, but I suspect she would be a leader I couldn't handle if if I was in her team, um, which has really been a, a surprise for me. <laughs> uh,
0: but that's good because it says you're able to separate style from substance.
1: Absolutely. And then a bit of a cliche, but Barack Obama and also being American. I, I was over here when he was president. I didn't listen to a lot of what he had to say. I didn't really get a sense of him. But then a couple of years ago, I was at Dreamforce when he gave his interview with, or did an interview with Mark Benioff. And it was just amazing and such a, such a mind, such an ability to communicate such passion and yeah, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had. And it wasn't like a speech, but it was just hearing him and that conversation that came out and thought, wow, what a leader.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, he's certainly an impressive communicator. There's no question about yeah. it. Um, in terms of then let's just sidestep into the application of what that journey you're going on and how it informs you as a sales leader. What is it that if you were, I were a fly on the wall, I would notice about how you impact, say, sales culture at peak. What does that look like? Because I know you mentioned, that you made a comment about it that to you sales culture was where you had happy, engaged people but also had a focus on a goal. And, and and that captures it well, but it doesn't help people understand how you actually go about achieving that. And maybe where some of the op- obstacles are in, in getting there and how you deal with that. So that's what I'd like to explore with you if that's okay. Yeah.
1: So I'm just trying to think of like specific tricks and tactics beyond saying it's important that everybody's aligned.
0: <laughs> Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about what are the kind of things you notice when you feel cultures drifting from where you'd like to be, and then how do you pick that up and bring it back in line again?
1: So when there is fighting over scarce resources, so you get SDRs fighting over whose lead is it, or um you know, AE's desperately angry because somebody has stolen something, then you know that it's just it's scarcity and it's also a lot of pressure and everybody is if we go back to the hierarchy of needs everybody's looking at self preservation and survival rather than being able to worry about the rest of the team so part of it is just to make sure that the team is well fed and there aren't scarce resources and that's really where an alignment with marketing comes in and then let's assume that there's enough for everyone and everyone can see a path to their individual success and money then the next step is how do you get the most out of the team rather than the individual? And I've I've talked about this as well before is everybody says sales is a team sport. And they talk about it as in like, you have your SDR and you have your sales engineer and you have your post sales and they all come together as a team. But what's also really important is the sales team itself is a team and not just a bunch of individuals who go off and work with their virtual teams and And that's something that we have worked really hard at to instill at peak. Um, The reason for it is 20 brains are better than one and we have so much we have to learn. It's a new market. We're creating a new category. You don't have time for 20 people to make the same mistake. It's much better for one person to make that mistake. Everyone else learn, then the next mistake, everyone can learn, right? And the next success, everyone can learn. And so that is the fundamental focus of the team. We work in pods. We take time out every week to do retros, talk about what we've learned quickly, embed that into the next version and execute again and remove the shame so that if something is made, if it's a mistake, it's like, okay, what can we learn from that is this? A forever mistake, or is it just this one customer? Cause that's another one is you get false negatives, don't you? Um, and then come back again. And that creates an environment where everybody can win. And when one person brings in that new elephant of a customer, everybody feels pride in it because it's been a journey that you have contributed in, on. And you can you. see your contribution.
0: Yeah, I'm curious how you do that, how you develop that team culture where individuals will have their own KPIs and they'll have their own targets, which in itself tends to create lanes that people operate in silos. And then with those natural incentives, how you kind of almost delete them so that people do operate as a team together that's that's a circle I, I don't know how to square. I'm curious to know, you must have come up against it for sure.
1: So part of it is who you hire in the first place and seeing how collaborative they are. And a lot of people say they want a collaborative environment, but they don't really mean it or they don't understand what it means. So digging into what do you mean by collaboration? When has it gone well before? What didn't you like about not having it And and get to see that you're speaking the same language. So that helps already. And then the next is, it's a bit like when I was talking about sharing a little bit of your shame and it works, and then you share a little bit more. It's the same way with collaboration. It's like, share your win, share your loss, listen to somebody else's win or loss. Go, oh, that was a valuable piece of information. I will take that and use it. And then you share something, go, oh, I felt good sharing. And that person has used my idea and it's worked. And through little steps, it becomes very self-reinforcing.
0: Yeah, it makes sense again, it, but it, but it starts by design before you hire people that you're hiring people in that automatically fit into that team collaborative environment. That makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, I think it's harder to retrofit it if you haven't started out with that in mind in the first place. Yeah. And I get that's, that's where the struggle is always, um, you, you, you mentioned that you, and, and I wasn't quite sure whether you subscribe to it or, or not this idea of where you've got your A players, your B players and C players. And it's like, you know, the, the standard thinking is you coach the C players out, you invest your time in the B players. And what you were saying is that we shouldn't ignore the A players for, for many good reasons. And I, and I'd like to talk about that, but also the, the one that kind of struck me, what I said, well, well, if you coach your C players out of the organization, I think that's just a euphemism for just, you know there's somewhere else better for them and uh they're not a good fit is that well if you do that then don't your b players automatically become the c players because the c players are gone the, that buffer is gone and i was just curious maybe unless i'm mean, being somewhat facetious with that but um uh, i i just wanted to get a sense of your experience of how people respond differently to uh the coaching and training they get as A players versus B players and what your experience of that is where maybe where the A players are often ignored.
1: So A players, they are, cause it's like, oh, well, they're they're fine, they know what they're doing, um, which is great for a while, but most likely they're A players cause they want to learn, they're at the top of their game. So why would you restrict them from getting even better? and growing however ways they want to grow. And if you're looking for retention and you don't want to lose your A players, uh, invest in them. And it might be that they need different coaching or maybe they want to move into management or maybe they don't, or maybe they have different courses they want to go on or they want to become experts in their vertical, support that. They're generally the ones that have the growth mindset. So let them grow. Um, B players, think, and this I'm just saying this off the top of my head, react better to like mass training Um, there and individual coaching for specific rules, but you can kind of mass uplift them. Let's say they they often have a lot of the same development areas. And so you can do a combination of the enablement is for them, plus some personal training uh, and support and coaching on their specific areas. And then the Cs, yeah, you do either exit the business or you find them roles that suit them better within the business, or maybe they're just not cut out for sales, but are amazing. at I don't want to list any specific roles, but amazing in supporting roles around the business. Your question around uh, if you get rid of the Cs, do the Bs become Cs really made me laugh because the, the same chair that made me cry <laughs> was a big believer in it is a bell curve. And every year you have to get rid of your bottom 10%, regardless, right? I don't subscribe to that. Um, first of all, you're at least in a growth environment, you always, are always hiring. So you might, you will make some false hi- um, bad hires and they might be your C's, but generally It doesn't have to be a bell curve. It can be this is good from here onwards, and you can get everybody here or not, rather than thinking it's always a distribution. Um, That said, I can't remember a year in my career where we didn't have to exit some salespeople.
0: Mm. So I can't
1: say that we've done it perfectly.
0: Okay. Uh, Well, I don't think anybody can because. Even if you hire the best people, things can change in their life, their priorities change, their needs change, and that changes how they perform as well. And I've experienced that in myself uh, over, over years. Uh, and so it's never a straight line, right? You, 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 and maybe sometimes with the right manager and the right coach and the right leadership, is that you can maybe smooth out the peaks and the troughs of people's motivation and intrinsic sense of self, uh, which drives performance, no doubt. And I wanted to maybe understand from your perspective, what you see is the traits and characteristics that are, tr- that that hold people back, but you've seen people grow with the right training and coaching so that they, they move past that line, as you mentioned. And then the, the traits and characteristics that you see that w- w- when you spot them now, it's a major red flag because You don't see them as movable objects. That's what I wanted to explore. What are the the traits and characteristics that are are movable that people can and the ones that are, or is it just down to individuals? Some will, if the right motivation is there, some won't, and you just got to move on with it.
1: I think it's always that question of, is it attitude or aptitude? And sometimes it's a little bit of a struggle to figure out which one it is. And because low aptitude can really be masked for a while by an amazing attitude. Um, (laughs) And then at a certain point, no matter how much you want that person to succeed, you realize, it's never going to happen. And they just don't have what it takes. Low bad attitude is much easier. Um, And those are often the most frustrating because it's just like, it's just your head. You just change your attitude, have that mind shifts, change, you're holding yourself back and you can be amazing. And that's the really hard one as a coach or a leader is to get that aha moment. Because
0: um, people and- with that would need to be extraordinarily vulnerable and trusting, because if I see that wall as green, you telling me, look, you just need to change and see it as blue. Mm. It's, it's very hard for me to understand because I see it as green. And and in order to go on that, I, then I have to kind of trust the process and trust you that I'll, I'll be vulnerable enough to kind of go, OK, I don't see it right now. However, I'll go with it. And I think that's something that I don't know that everybody has. And even if they have it's, it, it is hard. Has to be. Maybe, maybe, actually, maybe I should ask the question instead of assuming uh, is the role of peers in the organization rather than leadership. What role that plays That is a, as if I'm a rep, whether I'm an SDR or an AE and I look around the the influence my peers have over my openness to change versus it being felt like it's being imposed upon me by the, the organization
1: well that's where the collaborative environment collaborative environment really helps because you can see that person doing well it's like what are you doing you weren't doing well now you are what have you figured out and we do a lot of that and encourage people to do that and, uh, and that's also from trying to strip as much shame out of out of the out of the environment as possible And that just comes from modeling behavior, where you talk about your foibles, things you're uncomfortable with. And when people come to you, being okay with it, Mm. (laughs) and not shaming people.
0: Yeah, and that all comes back to people being willing to be vulnerable. I think if you start with that, you can achieve almost anything, right? Uh, Wanted to explore with you as well, a little bit around sales leadership versus sales management. One, one thing I've noticed, and I don't know if this was forever there, I've only noticed it in the last few years where everybody, once they, once they have people reporting to them at all, everybody now is sales leadership and that just can't be. And I wanted to understand how you see the difference between management and leadership and is management just a subset of leadership or are they two very distinct disciplines?
1: So having been thinking about leadership a lot, I I don't think that leadership and management are the same thing, because I think you can be an individual who is a leader and you might be a leader of one, but you're leading your life. Um, And management is, again, you can manage your life, you can manage people, but you're not necessarily leading them. Uh, So for leadership is vision, purpose, direction, and setting that environment for success. Management is organization, reporting, efficiency, process. Is it all running as smoothly as it can? And when you get the two together, it's very powerful, but you can definitely have people who do one or the other.
0: Is it a difference then of one is I know where I wanna go versus I know what I have to do, one being more, vision-based versus another one just, okay, I, I, I've read the manual. I know what to do, or I've done this before. I know what to do. Is it as simple as that or is, there something else to it?
1: I think it's also like without management, how do you know when you've gotten there? Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) that's true. And how do you know how to get there? (laughs) Yeah. I just, I just wonder then with leadership, how much of it is innate, for example, one of the things I don't know if you've ever read the book Birth Order, a uh, fascinating book, and it was what this guy, and I'm trying to remember, the, it doesn't matter his name, it'll come to me. Um, he wrote the book, and what caught my attention was that, uh, the, the, that our birth order in our family can influence our personalities, and that I think it was, and I might have the figure slightly wrong, like 22 of the 23 Apollo astronauts in those early missions were all firstborns and the other one was an only child and that if you look at the number of people who become presidents and leaders in organizations a lot of them are eldest children because and i look at my own children like this is that the eldest one when, when the second and third come along they're often given responsibility they're very early aged you know while mom and dad have a rest in bed on a sunday morning they're sent to look after the kids or if they're going out on the street to play the eldest one is always told look after your brother or look after your sister and I uh, and so I wonder we talk about leadership being trainable and that you can learn stuff I just wonder how much of it is just comes from how you grew up in that environment and how how responsibility sits easily on your shoulder. I know there's other things like vision and long-term orientation and conviction and belief and that sense of certainty, certainty that's attractive, that brings followers. But i just wonder how much of it is, just has to be there be- before you get to the job. What are your own and thoughts?
1: That's an amazing question. I, somebody else recommended the book about a week ago to me, so now I'm definitely gonna have to read it. Two recommendations is coming from the universe. Um, I'm an only child. I am the old, but I'm the oldest grandchild on both sides of the family. So yeah, I have all of those younger cousins, um, which is interesting to think about. And some of it, I think is innate. Like I don't struggle to make decisions. I might have to make a lot of decisions, but it's, I'm pretty comfortable with it. I always have been. If there's, I, I also really, I have a very system brain. So like, what's the best way to do things? What's the fastest way to solve a problem? And, um, and, and I did tend to get voted into leadership roles and every single time surprised me. I'm like, why am I the head of the group? Why did everybody nominate me? And just complete lack of self-awareness. But I think you're right that I had that throughout my life whereas now i'm trying to figure out what does it mean how am i a leader what how do i affect the world is it enough um but that's just probably just age and the journey Mm. how about you paul are you all this child
0: uh, i'm not i was youngest of so there's five in my family i was fourth and so i was youngest for five years until my younger sister came along and took that away from me And that's an interesting one as well that youngest children tend to be more attention seekers and uh, you'll see more hollywood actors and if you look at their bios you'll find out that they're often the youngest children in families as well they get a lot of attention from older siblings and also parents are exhausted by the time they get to youngest children and they tend to get a lot more freedom and and, and, and with the first one, I, this is, this, I, I can't believe I'm sharing this. I remember when, I have three children. My eldest, who works with me now, and he's 27, he came home from the hospital. We drove him home. Or of course, you're driving at maybe you got 20 miles an hour, and everybody else on the road is, is, is so irresponsible, right? <laughs> and you get home. I'm not kidding you. The first bath, my wife and I, because we lived in England at the time, so there's no parents and anybody else. We were on our own when we brought Rian home from the hospital. And we had this bath and we, we, we wanted to give Rena a bath. We literally had a book open on the page. <laughs> My wife was holding her. I can't remember. One of us is holding it. The other one is, okay, it says, test the water. Dip your elbow in the water to test the temperature of the water. We're literally reading from the manual. And uh, so that's going to bring a sense of anxiety that is going to be, I think, picked up on at a very early age. Oh, when your third one comes along, it's just been there, done that, bought the T-shirt and that has to influence personality. type. There's no question about it. And also then when it comes to if you're an only child, well, if you're among siblings, you have to negotiate for precious resources and fight your corner. If you're an only child, you don't have that experience. It doesn't mean you can't do it later on, that other influences, but you certainly get to an age where you, you haven't had to do that much, unless maybe you've got cousins and, and, and other family members. So it, it does depend on on specific circumstances, but you tend to see trends and truths that are, or I should say generalizations that are, you know, people hate generalizations, but they're there for a reason. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's true um i'm curious in terms of your own journey what it is you've learned most about yourself that has surprised you and how does that inform you as a leader in in a a sales organization i
1: learned most about myself um i don't know if it's so it's definitely you know the vulnerability and being able to say things that in the past, I never would have been able to share and show emotion. The thing that I have only just started to develop as a skill and it's taken me a very long time is to experience an emotion, but not react. So I can feel a huge amount of anger (laughs) and be like, I am feeling a lot of anger. Breathe and then be able to say to the group, I am really feeling anger right now. I am immensely frustrated by what has happened, but say it in this tone, whereas it used to not be that tone. And so being able to do that and have the group go, but not completely run away is very helpful.
0: That's really powerful because it communicates what you're going through but it doesn't cause that automatic reaction in them because people don't have the emotion to react to. They just have the data, which doesn't cause emotion. It's just data, right? It's just, here's what I'm feeling. That's really, really powerful, that is. That's really good. Okay, one final question, because I'm conscious we're up, we're up against uh, the buffers, uh, Bethany, is if there was a... When, when you eventually shuffle off this mortal coil and there's a plaque erected in your honor what would you like it to say oh god i have no
1: idea um um she really cared
0: that seems like a great place to uh to finish up. Bethanyers, I wanna thank you so much for being my guest today. It's been extremely insightful and I've really enjoyed the conversation and I've taken away a lot from it too. So thank you for being my guest today. Thank you very much, Paul. It's been a real pleasure.